going to talk about the Trinity. And by, by the end of the message tonight, I think you'll probably have more questions than answers. And uh, I guess that's to be expected. Um, maybe you'll go away more confused than you will enlightened. Um, and maybe in that context, I've accomplished my goal. Um, and it's okay not to have all the answers. Um, the scripture says uh, in Isaiah that, you know, God's ways are far above our ways and his mind is far above our mind. We're not expected to have all the answers. And, and anyone who says they have all the answers is only fooling themselves. <clears throat> so I want to be careful just to go slow tonight. And if I seem like I'm going extra slow, it's because I just want to take the time to make sure that uh, you're with me and make sure I don't go too far in one direction. And, but as Pastor said, um, <clears throat> how do you cover uh, a subject that we really can't understand in, in, one, uh, in one night? But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Um, I'm all for challenges. I'm all for doing things that, are, um, that stretch us. And uh, um, so we're going to work on that tonight. Now, Trinity, the word... Uh, we use it in the realm of Christianity to describe both unity and diversity within the Godhead. And the idea, though, is that the word Trinity does, that, does not actually show up anywhere in Scripture. So we don't find it. You can't get on your Bible software program or your concordance, if some of you still use those, <laughs> and look up the word Trinity. It's not there. Um, before the New Testament was completed, there were a lot of false doctrine, a lot of heresies, um, that were commonplace. And a lot of those heresies were about the deity of Christ. Uh, they just couldn't wrap their mind around how could God become man, just like the Jews had a problem, just like the people in the New Testament had a problem. Even people today have the same problem. How can God become man? They just couldn't wrap their mind around that. And so what some of the heresies did in the early church or the false doctrines in the early church did is, is, is it caused some of these really prolific writers, church fathers, we call them, to pick up their pens and to defend Christianity. And so, as Pastor mentioned, a couple of the different types of ways that groups look at the Trinity, I'm not going to go into, I'll go into some of them, but I'm not going to go into a lot of them in detail. I, I believe that it's better to know what God's Word says and know it well, that safeguards you against false doctrine. So the more you know what's right, the easier it will be to pick out what's false. Um, I think it was my, maybe I first heard it from my brother or someone else, uh, I can't remember. He said when they, um, working with banks and with bank tellers, um, you'd think that it would be good to handle the counterfeits so you would know what the counterfeits feel like. Uh, he said, no, he says, we only handle the real dollar bills so that you know exactly what the counterfeits feel like and how they're different from the real ones as they come through. And the same is true for doctrine. It's not wrong to look and to study about what other people believe if you're doing a study of cults or, you know, other, uh, other, um, other groups, other religious groups. But I feel like it's more important to know what God's word says and to know it well so that when false doctrine does come along, your red flag will go up and you'll say, okay, that's not what the Bible says. Something's not right about that. So in the early church, this is kind of what happened. 
Um, all these false doctrines were being pushed. Um, they really didn't understand how Jesus could be God and could be man. and They just, just couldn't get it, couldn't get it together. And so they picked up their pens, some of the church fathers, and they began writing. And they wrote some of the most prolific, some of the most um, uh, well-written statements about the Trinity that we still use to, today. Uh, one of the first ones that wrote something, his name was Tertullian. And Tertullian was the first one to develop the word Trinity. He's the first one that termed it. He says, the Godhead is a Trinity. He was the first one. Okay, he's already got my things up there. So this is what he said. And so Tertullian says this around 155-ish is when he uh, was born. Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. He probably wrote around 200 AD or so. These three are one substance, not one person. So he started the process, but heresies kept coming in. And one particular heresy was getting some traction called Arianism. And Arianism taught that the Son, Jesus Christ, was created by the Father. That was a bad thing because it makes him less than fully God. It makes him, it's kind of like he would say maybe the Trinity is two and a half, not, you know, not fully three. Um, but it was this false doctrine that gave birth to Athanasius. And if the Athanasius Creed is up here, and he was one of the most stalwart defenders of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I want you to slowly look at that as I read that, because this is one of the best statements. He says, so there is one father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So you're probably confused, aren't you? I would be too. The idea here, when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and by the way, those, those words that he penned, uh, and that's what happens in church history, is that a lot of times when those heresies come in, they get combated by these early apologists who sit down and think through what the scripture actually teaches and put it into words. And we have those that we can go back to and read through some of those church fathers. Now, do all the church fathers interpret the scripture the best? No, they don't. Some of them have problems, but you throw away the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. And to me, this is, this is some really good stuff. Because the doctrine of the Trinity means there's only one God who eternally exists in three separate persons, all of whom are equal. This means, like we said, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But each one is distinct. So I think some of our confusion sets in when we think about the idea that God is a person. Because that's kind of human terms. How he says these three are one substance, not one person. Because God far transcends what we would call a person, because he's much more than. He's both and and much more than, if I can say it that way. God does not consist of parts. You know, he's one. So it's almost like Scripture says that, that in one divine essence, there are three eternal distinctions or three eternal persons. And those distinctions are best described as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, terms that we can understand for us. Now, what I don't want to do is get too much on a definition. I just wanted to give you that to let you think about that, to let that marinate in your brain, maybe make you more confused than you already are or than you were tonight. Sometimes some of us walk around confused daily, don't we? 
um, let alone <laughs> coming to church and being more confused. So let that definition, we'll come back to it here towards the end, but I wanted to get that to you at the very beginning so you at least have some context and understand. What I want to do is what I want to show you is that there are several, there's lots of places in Scripture that talks about the Trinity all in one very spot, all in one simple location. So we used to do sword drills uh, growing up in Awanas and go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to see what it's saying and see who get there first. Now, it's not a race tonight, okay? But I wanted to show you, I want to put up on the screen here, and don't be inundated, but here are some scriptural evidences for the Trinity. I'm going to slowly go through them, just so you understand. And these are places where you see all three persons of the Trinity show up. And these are good scriptures. Um, if you know, you're putting in your Bible, you might write, you know, the Trinity shows up here beside it. And these are just three, four, five, six, seven, seven or eight up there uh, that I that I thought of and wrote down. There's, there's lots more, okay? But I wanted you to see this because I want you to understand how important it is that we get our understanding of the, of the Trinity through Scripture, through what Scripture says. Because every doctrine is based on, doctrine means teaching. It's based on what the Scripture says. So at the very beginning at creation, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, most of you probably can quote that. In the beginning, God Here's God created the heavens of the earth, the heavens and the earth. In verse 2 of Genesis, it says, The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, moved upon the face of the waters. And then if you go over to the New Testament in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Christ, all things were created by him that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities, powers, and it goes forth, okay? So all three guys, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in creation, Okay, so sometimes you have to look at that, but that's a big deal because creation is a big event, right? It's the most, one of the, I mean, it's a big event. It's important, right? So all three there are in the Trinity. Another great place in Luke chapter three uh, is at the birth, at the baptism of Jesus. I didn't put the birth of Jesus up there. Wow. Well, the birth of Jesus is up there too, and that's kind of important, right? Uh, the birth of Jesus, you can write that down. It's not up there. It's Luke one thirty-five. So if you want to write that down. Luke 135, at Mary's uh, miraculous conception, all three members of the Trinity are present. The verse says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God or Jesus. So all three there in the verse, okay? Now the baptism of Jesus. And this is one that you've probably read through many times. Have you recognize that all three are here. Uh, I believe in the Matthew passage as well. Luke 3, 21 to 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So all three are there. Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit comes down. The Father from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Again, all three are there. The upper room discourse before Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross the next day. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from me, he will testify of me, which is Jesus. Okay? So there's all three there. Okay? Good verse. Now, Great Commission You've probably 
quoted that many times before. Um, Go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they're all three there, and that's all really close. They're all really close together. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three together. Pastor's been taught, preaching through uh, 1 Corinthians. I don't know if he'll make it to 2 Corinthians. Maybe he's done with first, after 1 Corinthians. It's like, no more, okay? So 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is at the end of the Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians. And this Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So all three are there. Uh, I think Pastor mentioned Titus this morning briefly as well. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his, God's mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, there's all three. And then the last one, Hebrews 9, 14. It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through, eternal, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to, to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All three in here. Now these are just seven or eight. I tried to pick out the big ones, the ones that you'd be most familiar with, okay? So all three parts of the Godhead are in these verses, okay? All three are part of it. Because what I want you to understand throughout our time tonight is, is the Trinity um, the idea that God is, is a triune being, okay? The Trinity is involved in everything. It's, it's involved through a lot of things through the narrative of the Scripture, things that we sometimes don't even think about. And so I wanted you to understand that, and we'll come back to that just a little bit. Now, as with all major Bible doctrines, scholars, Teachers, preachers, Bible students often, often look for ways in which to illustrate. And Pastor used that illustrious word earlier. Illustrate the truth they're trying to teach. Now every speaker knows that no illustration is ever perfect. Sometimes they get pretty close. <laughs> but it's never perfect. And they all fall short in some fashion. But the problem here. And this is where the danger arises. The problem here within the context of the Trinity is that the wrong illustration can actually teach false doctrine. And that's the big deal that we have to be careful of. Because while it sounds good, and we might say, well, that'll preach, or that sounds good as something to teach, you know, be careful. Because the way that it's illustrated, it may not make the most sense. And it's hard to find an exact illustration. But... Um, when, when you speak to someone, uh, you want to explain something to them. You want to help them see it because some people think differently. Some people think in a visual way. Some people think in a linear way. Some people have trouble thinking at all, <laughs> you know, the way it works. So you need to find ways to, to illustrate or to explain it better. And you do it in conversations. We do it all the time. We try to explain something. And the way you try to explain something to someone who has no idea is you make a comparison or you a contrast or you give them a picture or you, or you give them a visual, a diagram or something. This, this is what I want, you know? And that's hard, especially with the Trinity. And many of the analogies and, and uh, illustrations that I'm going to give you tonight, uh, they, they all began with the best of intentions. I don't think any one of them sat down and thought, hey, I really want to confuse them 
about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm going to use this illustration because I really want to mess up. Now, Satan may have done that, but I don't think an ordinary believer is thinking, hey, this illustration is going to be just tear the church apart. It's going to mess things up. I don't think they started with that at all. I think they started with good intentions. But every one of these illustrations are going to fall short because God cannot be described in a way that you can fully comprehend. God, you can't fit God in the box. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Um, But what often happens is that when we try to make an illustration of the Trinity, we're forced to diminish something about it. And that's what is dangerous too. Um, So let me walk through some of these illustrations and you'll have fun because you've probably heard some of these illustrations. So here are the bad illustrations. I say bad um, and I'll explain them. The first one is this. The Trinity is like an egg. Okay? I like eggs. In one egg, you have the white, the yolk, and the shell composing one full egg. It's kind of nice. Be a good little object illustration. I thought about bringing up an egg, you know. Okay, the problem with this analogy is that an egg yolk is of a different substance than the shell. Okay? The egg is made up of three parts, but all the parts are unlike each other. Okay? This analogy kind of denies the unity of the Godhead. In fact, this false doctrine um, or or this illustration uh, would deny the unity of God, saying that there are not one God but three gods, three separate gods. I don't think anybody's ever tried to defend this, but they would call this tritheism or the, the idea of three gods or polytheist, meaning many gods, but tritheism, meaning um, serving three gods. So you've got an egg yolk, you've got the shell, all three substances here in, in the egg. They're not like each other. There's not, there's not a good comparison here. While it sounds good, while it, while it makes sense, hey, that's kind of a good illustration, it actually teaches that we're talking about three separate gods, and that's not true, because God is one. As Deuteronomy says, the Lord our God is one. Of course, he's in three persons, but he's one. The second one, Pastor mentioned, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. Now, we just celebrated uh, St. Patrick's Day. Um, uh, I have Irish in my mother's side, so I am Irish a little bit in that sense. In the 1800s, they came over from Ireland on one of the ships, and I can go back and look at the documents and record. And record. So I like Irish. I like St. Patrick. He was a good fella. Uh, St. Patrick was the one who came up with this three-leaf clover. And the story goes, somebody was talking to him and he was trying to explain the Trinity. And so he just reached down, you know, with all the clovers. Thankfully, he didn't pick up a four-leaf clover, right? Picked up the more common ones, right? The three-leaf clovers and picked it up and said, God, it's like this. And, you know, three parts and one. Um, so three different clovers represent the three different persons of the Trinity. That's, that's good. I mean, that sounds like a good illustration, right? But the three clovers are overly distinct and cannot represent the unity of God. They're all the same, okay? There's no distinction. They're all exactly the same. And this teaches a doctrine we call partialism. And it's just simply saying that God is made up of three equal parts. You know, a third the Son, a third the Father, a third the Holy Spirit, you know? Again, this illustration denies the unity of the Godhead, that God is one in three separate persons. 
So while I like St. Patrick and I like what he did for Christianity and I celebrate that every single year, I even have a nice beautiful green Bible that I should have brought and used tonight in honor of St. Patrick. Um, he didn't really use the best illustration. The third one, you may have heard this one. The Trinity is like water. Okay, it's like water, right? Water has three states, right? Let's go back to science class for a minute. You ready? Water has three states. It's solid, it's liquid, and gas. Although the water changes forms, it's still H2O, right? Just as water changes forms, so does the Trinity, okay? The problem here is that the distinction that God had is denied with this analogy. No one molecule of H2O can actually exist as a solid, liquid, and gas at the same time, okay? The water molecule must change forms somehow. Now, this is one, this uh, false doctrine is called modalism. And this is one you've probably heard of before. Uh, maybe you don't have the name specifically for it, but maybe you've heard of it before. Because it kind of teaches that Trinity lies not in three distinct persons, but three different modes that God reveals himself to human, human beings through. So like in the Old Testament, the mode was the Father, in the Gospels, the mode was the Son. In Acts and the Epistles, the mode was the Holy Spirit. Okay? So one God changes forms or modes over the course of Scripture. So modalism denies the distinctions of each person in the Trinity. Okay? God doesn't change forms. Like Pastor was saying about uh, the, the other doctrine he was mentioned. God doesn't change forms. He's all one all the time, always in three separate and unique and distinct persons. All right, two more. Stay with me. The Trinity is like a man who is a father, a husband, and a son. Okay? The problem here. Like the water analogy, the analogy denies the distinction of persons in the God. A man cannot be simultaneously a father, a husband, and a son to any one person. He can be those three things, but he cannot be those three things to one person at all times. <laughs> His role changes depending upon who he interacts with. And again, like the false doctrine earlier, modalism, God doesn't change forms. He stays the same. Okay? Three persons, one Godhead. Now, of all the, of all the illustrations, the, the last one, is probably one of the closest that you can find to, you know, getting inside the ball field. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Getting inside the ball field. Perhaps the least flawed one, we might say, is actually music. Did you realize that? So let me put it to you this way. Three distinct, the Trinity is like a musical chord of three notes, okay? A chord of three notes. And those who are musically inclined, and I am not, hopefully I, I don't botch this, okay? Three distinct notes work together to make one melodious sound, existing in the same time and space and purpose, all while remaining separate and distinct. Each note fills up the space and creates a beautiful sound, and yet when combined with the other two notes, continue to make a beautiful sound as well, all while remaining distinct from the other two. So that's one that actually might be close. But again, it still has problems. Still has problems. So now I think you need a visual though, right? Because visuals help your brain work, right? 
So put the visual up there so we can see, okay? So we have only one God, all right? The middle illustration is like we would say modalism, where God changes forms, or at one time he's the Father, or at one time he's the Son, or at one time he's the Spirit. That's probably the most prominent false doctrine, I'd say, and that's why I put it up there. As far as when we talk about the Trinity, the most prominent one that's pushed, whether you know it's being pushed or not, or somehow it changes forms, okay? But the last one here on the end, uh, the Trinity here, you can see my, the arrows, look, the Trinity here, you can see how it works. God is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Spirit, but the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, okay? So hopefully may, that might give you a picture in your mind of what the Trinity actually would look like if you were to put it down on a piece of paper. All right, so I believe that all theology should be relevant, so let me try to make all this relevant to you, all right? So let's talk about some practical implications. Here's a few. The doctrine of the Trinity is embedded into the scriptures in ways that are far more practical than we could imagine. Far more practical. Far more practical. Since the beginning of the story of the narrative of scripture, the Trinity has been involved since the very beginning, okay? Are far more practical, okay? I mean, you think here, the triunity of God drives the mission of the church. So think about this. In the book of Acts, the church receives the Spirit to proclaim the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father, okay? The very witness and mission of the church demands the Trinity be involved. The church receives the Spirit. Remember when the Spirit comes down? To proclaim Jesus, the Son, who sits, the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father, all in Acts chapter 2, okay? So the very witness of the church demands the Trinity. That's relevant. That's practical to us. We can see how that works out, okay? In our sanctification process, we're made more like Christ, right? Romans chapter 8. By the internal work of the Spirit for the glory of God. All three parts of the Trinity, okay? In our sanctification process, which means our process of trying to be more and more like Christ, okay? In trying to be more and more like Christ, as we're made more like him, it's done by the internal work of the Spirit for the glory of God. All three parts right there, okay? The Trinity is in a lot more thing than you'd think, okay? In our prayer life, we pray to God, right, through the Son as the Spirit intercedes for us, okay? So in your prayer life, you're Trinitarian in your practice, you might say. So we're praying to God, we're praying through the Son, and we're praying as the Spirit intercedes for us. In the courtroom scene of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, the end of history, the Father honors the Son whose ministry is anointed by the Spirit. I've got a bunch more of these, but I'm not going to push through all of these. But maybe the biggest implication is that without the Trinity, the cross just doesn't work. I mean, that's pretty big. Who does, Christ, who does Christ satisfy in his death if there is only one person in the Trinity? Who receives his atoning work? If Christ is not God, how does his death satisfy the wrath of God and give us the righteousness of God? 
It just doesn't work. So the Trinity, you might not think of it as something as a part of your theology and your thinking of everyday life, but it's there. And it's all through Scripture. I mean, even mankind, man himself, man is, is Trinitarian. Body, soul, and spirit. Genesis tells us that, that we were created in the image of God and according to his likeness. Okay, God is a three-part. God is a triune being. So are we. Body, soul, and spirit. But here's what you need to understand. The Trinity can be best summed up in these three. Three again. The Trinity is three and can be summed up in these three. See, threes? Threes are all over Scripture. You'd be surprised. There is one God. That's your unity part. God is three persons. They're distinct. Okay? Remember? One is not the other. One is not the same. And then each person is fully God. That's deity. Deity is the one that the early church just couldn't get. They couldn't get how can Jesus be, be God? How can this be? And they, the early church, fought against those people, those, those ones who taught false doctrines. They were denying the deity of Christ. He's not really God. He's half God and half man, they'd say. Or they say he's become God at his baptism or become the son in his baptism. Or, or he wasn't before time began. He was born. The father gave birth to the son, they'll say. And so all these early church heresies caused the church fathers to pick up their pens and write and say, no, this is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God is one, and he exists in three co-eternal, co-equal persons, if we can say that, okay? I'm using the term persons. And they, they fought hard for this because this is embedded in everything. I mean, since the very beginning, the Trinity has been here. I mean, this is, this is so embedded into Scripture, and Satan knows this, that if you study the book of Revelation, what does he try to do? He tries to mock the Trinity, doesn't he? Let's have an unholy Trinity. Okay? The false prophet, the beast, and Satan, or the dragon. Okay? He's, he knows that the Trinity is a part of everything, and he knows it so well that he's going to use that to mock the true Trinity. I mean, the one person he doesn't want people to follow is Christ, and so he creates an antichrist, right? <laughs> he's going to look like Christ, but he's not going to be Christ, okay? So everything from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's got the Trinity written all over it. And while it's a concept that is complicated and not fully able to understand with our minds, it's still something that we believe, and I like the song that we sang, and I thought that was fitting. You know, we believe in God the Father. We believe. It doesn't say we understand everything there is about God the Father. We understand everything. Nobody could sing that song, whether with notes or actually with the lyric. <laughs> you couldn't. But we believe this is what Scripture teaches. Now, if you decide, you say, oh, well, I want to study a little bit more about the Trinity, I would say that you need to find your way to the book of John. The book of John is a great book where you can see all the distinctions of the Trinity involved, where Jesus was always about the Father's plan. 
Jesus was talking about the Father. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who would be sent after he leaves. John is a great book if you ever wanted to study about the Trinity and try to understand more of what Scripture says about the Trinity. But if we get our belief system right, if we're firm about what the Scripture teaches, it's going to help fight against any false doctrine that might come in. Just like Pastor said this morning in the message, uh, very, very important. He says, your thinking in Philippians chapter 4, your mind, keep your mind on things that are good, 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 so that it stays away from things that are bad. Just like we keep our doctrine on what God's word teaches so that we can be on defense and know that's not what God's word teaches. There's something not right about that. Now, sometimes people may just say it differently. They may say it with a couple different synonyms or a couple different words and you have to look and ask them questions and that's all part of the struggle. But doctrine, all theology to me should be relevant. Okay, Now, if we're struggling with understanding this tonight, and I know we all are, um, then take heart that there were still some early church fathers who still didn't understand it all, who still didn't get it all. And I want you to put up this last thing on the screen here. Um, as his students, um, this is St. Augustine, okay? As his students were studying the doctrine of the Trinity, the well-known church father offered some wise advice. Listen to what he says. Lest you become discouraged, he says, and they were. <laughs> know that when you love, you know more about who God is than you could ever know with your intellect. And I think that was a really, really good way of understanding this. They were studying the Trinity. They were trying to understand it, trying to wrap their mind around it. And he says, lest you become discouraged, know that when you love, you know more about who God is than you could ever know with your intellect. Because when you love, you act just like Jesus does. For God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world, okay? Theology has to be practical. It has to be relevant. So when you love and when you love someone else, you know more about God because the one thing that God did for us, all the things really that God does for us is because he loves us. And the more we love others, the more we really understand what makes him work, what makes him tick, so to speak. And so I thought St. Augustine had some really good words to say for people who were studying the Trinity. All right. Everything is as clear as the Ohio River. Right? So from tonight's message, just to give you just a little bit, enough, to, enough hopefully to, to, to allow you to dig further into the Trinity um, and it's something that, uh, again, is, is difficult to understand, but yet it's something that Scripture teaches and it's something that we believe. But I just wanted you to see how the Trinity is involved in a lot of things that we do on a daily basis in our lives that we don't even recognize. It's because that we're created in God's image. And so we're going to have that body, soul, and spirit just like God is a three-tripart being we are as well.